Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. It's Monday's Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the weekend. It's almost impossible not to enjoy it when there's so much going on. We're going to talk championship in a second, but I've come to the realisation that one of my favourite moments of theatre in sport is the period during a World Cup knockout game between the end of extra time and the start of the penalty shootout. It used to... Maybe this is just an I'm getting old kind of thing to say here, Murph, but it used to be about a five or six minute break, get a bit of water, Mm. a few lads refuse to take a penalty fewer lads put their hands up and probably miss then they go and do the shootout now it appears to last anywhere up to half an hour during which the goalkeeper can break down crying the Brazilian players can go around probably breaking every sports psychology rule in the book by psyching themselves up when they're about to take penalties Mm. rather than keeping their nerves calm the Costa Rican players can stroll around the place looking joyous they had survived with 10 men and they knew they were going to win that penalty shootout I just love the time in between they're they're dragging the arse out of it though. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, one man's sporting theatre is another man's. It's half twelve. Can we just get to bed already? Uh, so, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I, I I understand where you're coming from. Uh, I know that what you say is true, that it is very dramatic. But I mean, I think we can distill all that drama. You know what? If we're talking theatre, if we're talking real cinematic drama, what that needs is just a really good editor. You know to distill all of the emotion that you're talking about into the amount of time, say, that it takes for a kettle to boil. You know, so the game finishes. Penalties coming up. In the time it takes for me to turn on the kettle, boil the kettle, make myself a nice cup of tea, I want to be sitting back down just as, you know, the referee is talking to the two goalkeepers and we're about to, you know, get down to business here. It is actually a dilemma that you raise there. How do you make sure to keep your tea intake regular and for an Irish person a regular tea intake is 8 to 12 cups a day mm. how do you make sure to get all those cups down you while there's so much sport going on well the World, Cup, the World Cup is challenging for a lot of people you know the players uh, playing in that intolerable heat for the Netherlands and Mexico yesterday uh, me trying to keep my tea intake up I mean there, you know there, it provides unique challenges every four years you know mm. um, I, I think it's actually quite easy I mean all you have to do really on is just move the kettle into the sitting room um, or move the TV into the kitchen. 
Well, no, don't, the size and don't be daft, on, don't be daft. Just get the kettle in. The kettle is it's an inobtrusive piece of kit. Just have it there beside the beside the sofa, um, and that's that's pretty much you. Tea you know? bags in the whole lot. Little yeah, uh, kitchen within a living room. Biscuits in the fridge if it's a particularly warm day, just to make sure that the chocolate doesn't melt. Ken was in Recife for the Costa Rica victory. You can take a listen to our World Cup podcast, which is out now, for reaction to that on all four games from Saturday and Sunday. Even the Costa Rica game gave us the excitement of... I thought extra time was quite funny to watch, just in... And then, of course, a penalty shootout. But just in the way that the players, the Costa Rican midfield, in fact, their entire team, could not move after a while. It reminded me of that, you know, the finish to that triathlon. Oh, the crawl. The crawl, yeah. That's what it reminded me of. Uh, YouTube it, if you don't know what I'm talking about. But basically, these two uh, women finishing a triathlon, falling about the place, delirious from tar- from uh, exhaustion. And cr- I would say largely cramp. Cramp, L- their exhaustion, the whole, the whole yeah. gamut of emotions. That's basically what we saw from the Costa Rican team for the last 10 minutes. And there's something, well, I'm going to say it, there's something quite funny about it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> seeing these fantastically toned and uh, fit athletes with their bodies their bodies literally breaking down in front they're of their They're reduced to us basically. Yeah. Fit athletes are reduced to your common schlobs like After yourselves. 10 minutes. On today's show one of Ireland's greatest ever athletes David Gillick has announced his retirement double European indoor champion he was sixth in the world outdoors in 2009 which they're just incredible achievements and we're talking about 400 metres here this is one of the key things I want to talk to him about when he pops into studio in a couple of minutes surely any self-respecting young Irish teenage athlete should be slopping around in the mud or at least have the good grace to run lap after mind-numbing lap mm. in the 10,000 metres rather than taking on and beating the best sprinters in the world. That's a good respectable distance, 10,000 metres. For an and Irish person, yeah. 10,000 10, metres and above. Um, that's the kind of distance... Well, I mean, in fairness, we, we have a good record of 1,500 metres. You know, one th- Olympic gold medal. Up until the Gillick hessian O'Rourke type era, yeah. I would say... 1500 metres was our 100 metres. Yeah, exactly. That was our sprint. Yeah. Basically, we quite good at Ronnie it. Delaney was the greatest Irish sprinter of all time. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I mean, the, the culture change that we all even had to go under as fans of athletics to actually say, wow, we can actually compete at this level. That's an extraordinary thing that uh, that group of athletes did for us. It's something that he's been thinking about for a while, David Gillick. I know he had a bad couple of years with injuries. He is back fit as far as I know, but he uh, has decided obviously to hang up the spike. So I'm not sure if the fact that he's had those couple of years has maybe made it easier for him now. I guess this, it's still probably difficult when you decide that that's it. You're not going to compete um, internationally anymore. You're not going to be a competitive athlete as such anymore. I'm, I'm sure he'll still remain quite competitive in, in everything that he does, but we'll get to him in a little while. Speaking of long distance runners, Quote here from the Western manager Aidan O'Brien Murph says a lot is made of Dublin's fitness and I would make the analogy with a group of athletes lining up for the Olympic final of the 5,000 metres. They're all in pristine peak fitness and yet some of them will be overlapped by others because there's fitness, there's also innate athleticism. I think that that's what Dublin currently have, a phenomenal athleticism right around the field. It was just an interesting take. Um, I suppose you could argue that in ways we're talking about, we're splitting hairs a little bit when you're trying to divvy up athleticism from just pure fitness but I do take the point it's not just a bunch of lads running around the place it's a bunch of people doing a lot of running but doing it in an effective way because they're athletic mm. they're not just necessarily workhorses yeah I think I think you can you can get yourself fit but you can't make yourself an athlete and you do a lot of weights yeah and again I think that that's that's not that's more power that's not the athleticism really that Aidan O'Brien I think is talking about what uh, what he means there 
is not the guy that's came back to training in January, stone overweight, lost the stone, trained for six months, and is now able to run around for 70 minutes. It's the way that Dublin have actually players that if the game was 90 minutes long, you would still be expecting them to be as effective as they were in the first minute. Yeah. And that's that That maybe is the scary thing. Maybe that's the thing that he saw uh, up close and personal yesterday that he actually didn't realise. Marky Clerken and Anthony Moyles will be in to talk about that in a little while. But David Gillick has joined us in studio. David, you come in to talk about your retirement. How are you? I'm okay. I'm I'm good. Um, yeah, you, you hit the nail on the head. It's uh, it's time for me to to hang up my spikes. I guess the first thing to do is to congratulate you on a brilliant career because that's Thanks. the. I know yeah. it can be quite sad and quite tough for competitors, but first of all, congratulations. When did you actually decide in your own head that you you were finished? I think to be honest, it was it was a long process. Um, you know, if you go back twelve months. Uh, I was training in Australia and I got myself into very good shape. And this was post-Olympics where I decided, you know, I, got, I was injured for, and I missed out in London and I decided, no, I'm going to give it another go, you know. Um, so I went down, I was training in Australia and done a very good session, was prepping for a race in Japan and then my Achilles went. So that was really, really tough to take. And I did a long, long rehab um, to the point where, you know, did all everything on the Alter G and everything like this, used all the technology I could and went back on the track and it just just wasn't right. It was painful. So I kind of left Australia quite down um, and I came back and then I had the whole MasterChef process, uh, which was brilliant for me and gave me such a lift. But then when that was over, um, it was the summer and obviously I wasn't competing and I was very down and I kind of, I think the seed was planted then regards what am I doing and where am I going. But I kind of stuck at it um, and I said to myself, oh, look, I'll, I'll just see if I'm still enjoying what I'm doing come the autumn. So I went back into a bit of training and it just wasn't really there. Um, you know, I had to be really honest with myself and I kind of toyed around and you, you kind of hoped that, um, I think as athletes, you're you're always optimistic and uh, it I kind of felt, oh, maybe the spark will be there, something will reignite and I'll, I'll love what I'm doing again and I'll be willing to give it everything and... But I, I was kind of training away, and my body was still giving me giving me a bit of grief. And then, kind of over New Year's um, at Christmas, I kind of decided, you know, I really have to make some decisions here. So then, over over the last couple of months, that was kind of my, my decision was more or less made. But I'd never really done anything about it. Um, regards come, coming out and announcing anything, and yeah, I suppose over the last as the, as the summer approaches, the summer's always the hardest time, and um, when you're not competing because that's the season. So, you know, you're always looking at results coming in. There's races on the TV, and I just decided there the la- in the last four weeks that no, it's time. What's that process like when the spark dies a little bit? Is it the cliched idea that we hear sports people sports people always say when I when I don't fancy getting out of bed in the morning to go training. That's when it's over. Is that how it was for you? Yeah, to be honest, it, you know, as simple as it sounds, yeah. It's, um, you know, with me, I had, you know, if you look at my career from maybe 10 years, um, eight years were very, very productive, very positive, and then had more or less two years with injury. And those two years were, were really, really hard. Um, and you kind of, you go through a process where you get a knock and you're really determined and motivated to get through it. You do all your rehab and you get back. And then you get another knock and you're like, no, this is fine. I'll get it. I'll do it again. And you do it again. You do it again. And then I got another knock. So mentally, you're kind of taking a hit and you begin to kind of realize, God, sport, sport is very fragile. Um, And that's where you kind of start thinking, God, what am I going to do now the rest of my life? Because what happens in athletics, if you're not performing, you're not 
you've no revenue coming in. You're not competing on the world stage. You're not making money from meets, you know, sponsors, funding, things like that. Um, and that's just life, you know, in any walk of life. If you're not performing in your job, chances are you'll be shown the door. And sport is no different. And I think with me, that's where it was at. And you, I did kind of, you know, after going through all that whole process of injuries and, you know, disappointment and, and all that thrown in, I did... Like that, the love of the sport was really, really kind of tested. And uh, as I'm getting older as well, like you do, like I know my sport and the facts of it and, and where I need to be regards making an impact. And that's running sub 45 seconds on a regular basis, getting into the, the top eight, making finals. That's where it's at. And, you know, I had to be really, really honest with myself and say, OK, I'm now 31 next week. Where where can I go? You know, can I get back to that level? And I know what's required to get back to that stage, and it's a it's a massive amount of work. It sounds like a very personal decision because I am always interested in these sort of scenarios. Do you talk to a lot of people around you, to friends, to family, or is it literally just it's in your own head? You're the only person who really can make this decision. Absolutely, it, it's one hundred percent your decision, and. You know, you'll talk to people and they'll they'll always throw in their two pence. Like I had one of my good mates um, today text me saying you're too young to retire, you're too young to retire. And, you know, it, they all mean really well and they all want to kind of, you know, keep you uplifted. But you've got to be really honest with yourself. And um, I always said uh, when I finished um, in DIT here in Dublin before I moved over to England in 2006, I said, I don't want to get to the age of 30 and look back and say, what if? You know, so that was my my promise to myself, and I always said I'd reevaluate uh, things when I when I hit thirty. And last summer I was thirty, and uh, I did reevaluate. And um, now it took me a year to kind of sit here and 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 tell you the crack. But it is a very personal decision, and I you know I had to kind of like do a bit of soul searching and really see what I wanted. We interviewed you on TV a few months back, David, and I was interested. A lot of sports people talk about the buzz of competing and missing that. I always took that to mean the buzz of winning a race or scoring a goal or whatever. You were talking more at that stage about the nerves before a race, and in that case, the nerves before doing a TV interview. I'm wondering, is, can you explain that to us a little bit more? Did you actually enjoy that process of getting nervous before a big race? Yeah, originally, um, well, I'll tell you a story. Back in, in Madrid in 2005, when I, I first won my Europeans, um, I went... I can remember I was living at home with mum and dad and mum was dropping me to the airport on a Wednesday. So she was making me lunch and I was so nervous I couldn't eat it. You know, this was on a Wednesday. I wasn't racing until right. like the Friday night. It could not have great even, for an athlete, I'd say. No, absolutely. Um, but it got worse, you know. I was so nervous, flew out and I remember sitting, I think it was Kira uh, our sprinter, I was sitting beside her on the plane and she's yapping away and I'm just like... Quite as a mouse, just thinking of my race. I was so intense and nervous. And this went on until even the Friday before my race. I couldn't even eat. Um, I remember at the time my coach, Jim Kidd, brought me uh, out for something to eat before the final on the Saturday. And I couldn't eat. I, I was outside the restaurant on all fours. Um, I was just so nervous. And I, I managed to win. I don't know how I won because I had no energy. But I came back from that championship and I thought... God, if I'm going to like continue doing athletics for the next couple of years, I better start enjoying what I'm doing. Um, so I kind of learned then how to deal with the anxiety and the nerves. Um, and then in the latter part of my career, it, it became something that I, I wanted the nerves. You know, I got this buzz that really 
told me that I cared. So I started to embrace the nerves um, and the butterflies and all that. And, you know, I learned how to deal with them and kind of use them to my benefit. And that really gave me, when I got the nerves, it gave me the confidence that I'm ready to go here. I'm ready to fight. Is there um, any technique to learning that? Because I'm sure a lot of people would like to get that Yeah, skill. I think it was a case that, um, like, I, I started working a bit with, with Andy McNulty then as well. Um, and we started doing a bit of visualisation and, you know, to the point where I'd be lying in the bed and I'd be thinking about my race. Um, so go forward two years to 2007 when the Europeans came around again. And I was so well prepared that, you know, I had the nerves and everything like that. I had the nerves even when I started thinking about the race in, in the weeks, the days leading up to it. But I used to start uh, visualising my race and I could, to the point where, like, I'd gone through so many scenarios that when I actually won, it felt that I'd already been there. Wow. You know, I'd gone through that whole process and, you know, like just even putting on music and kind of thinking, all right, and going through every sort of scenario in the race that, okay, I'm going to break at this point. He's going to be ahead of me. I'm going to chase him down. You know, I'm going to cross the line. I'm going to throw my arms up. I'm going to hit the hit the, uh, the hoarding on the side. I went through all that, and it was actually a surreal experience. And I think that's when you, when you read into kind of how to deal with nerves and stuff like that, actually going through a visualization process um, encourage you and your body to almost feel like you've been there before. So it's nothing new. So you've dealt with the nerves and the scenarios in your head before. So nothing's like new. What if something happens unexpected on the day? That's the only thing I would think that you visualise yeah. every possible thing. And then, I don't know, an athlete, as it can happen in your race particularly, just bumps you off the track, whatever, something like that. It's even even worse than that. Like um, a lot of athletes and myself included are very superstitious. So <laughs> I used to do the same thing the day before, the night before, the day off. Um, and there's been various scenarios where the bus doesn't turn up or you forgot your spikes, you forgot your accreditation, so you're running back to the room and, you know, party is like, oh, my God, that, that's changed my routine. That's changed my routine. Or even funny ones where, you know, if you're going out of championship and you're going through various um, rounds and, and heats and finals, etc., that you have your same spot on the warm-up. So I, if I went down day one and I found my little corner... <laughs> And if I went back the following time, there was someone else in my corner. I'd be walking around like a headless chicken, stressed. Um, but these are the little things that over time you learn that, do you know what, that doesn't really matter. Or if you're not wearing your lucky socks, it doesn't really matter. Um, and that probably comes with experience as well. Learning that, um, you know, these little minute things don't necessarily really matter to, to the end cause. But sometimes in a race, yeah, there, there's things that are out of your control. And it's happened more so in indoors that uh, I've got I got tripped um, twice. Um, one of the worst ones was in Doha when, uh, you know, I went tried to take a fella on the inside and um, he kind of stepped on me. The two of us, the race was over. And these are the, that sport. And you can't, as much as you're so frustrated, and I still run that race over in my head that... Um, you know, I wish I did things differently, but that's just sport. And there's certain things that, you know, you can't prepare for because yeah. you just don't know. It's out of your control. It's interesting you say that, that you still play it over because you did an interview with Ian O'Reardon at the start of this year in the Irish Times. You said one thing about elite sport is this idea of having no regrets. Well, I have loads of regrets and I think athletes have to be honest about that. I know I did try my best. I gave it 100%, but you can't always beat yourself up about it either. Is that something you have to convince yourself of almost? Because the natural inclination for most human beings is to probably beat themselves up over instances like you described. Right. Yeah, like I suppose growing up and being in sport, people are, you know, regrets are deemed as a bad thing. But I kind of looked, I, I would have thought like that, to be honest. I would have said, oh, you know, beating myself up for, 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 for ages. Sometimes I still do over decisions that I made. But, you know, having regrets shows that you, you are willing to, to give it everything and really go for things and put your neck in the line. And, 
you know, I made a decision years ago to move to England, and that went well. I made a decision to go to America, that didn't go well. Um, do I regret going to America? Yeah, I do now, because in hindsight, you kind of think, God, maybe if I, if I had done this or if I had done that, but it's a case that you just, you, you got to be honest with yourself in order to move forward, and, um, you know, particularly in, in high-performance sport, I would have good seasons, and we debrief at the end of the season, I'd have to turn to my coach and go, okay, well, like, how am I going to get better? How am I going to find 0.1, 0.2 of a second? Because um, that matters at that level. And, you know, it's very easy off, off a good season that you just, you go on your holiday, you come back and you resume training. Um, and that's where on, on when things go bad, you probably learn a lot more because you, then you're willing to actually really look and go, what went wrong? Um, and, you know, if you can get into that routine, of debriefing and just being really honest with yourself and you know you, you have to kind of look at all aspects and that's kind of what I, I would have done throughout my career is really challenge myself and challenge the people around me in order to, to get to the top What convinced you as a kid to sprint because this was we talked to you about Dervil O'Rourke's <laughs> retirement last week and you made the point that she was an inspiration to you in terms of her mindset but she wasn't around when you were growing up and Irish sprinting I mean, I'm guessing a lot of coaches might have said to you listen 1500 metres is the shortest distance you're running so <laughs> that's it yeah like I, I went to St. Penildas and uh, they, uh, they had a strong tradition in cross country and um, I was doing cross country all the way up to my leaving set uh, and yeah to be a sprinter people would be saying you might as well move up to I know look Jerry Kiernan yes move up 800 metres 1500 metres all that but I suppose you kind of just find something you enjoy and with me well to get into athletics I was the fastest in my class that's always the start who's the fastest in the class who's the fastest uh, in the playground and luckily enough I was um, and then my brothers my family my sister they were all into into running and Dundrum was just literally down the road so that's how I kind of got into the sport and then over the years I to be honest, it's kind of strange when I look back because there was a time when I was going nowhere in athletics. You know, even on Dublin Championships, I was coming in fourth and fifth. Um, I was playing Gaelic and soccer and I was probably doing better at that than I was running. But for some reason, I just kept at the running. And then I kind of came around, you know, what inter-level in school. So maybe 15, 16. And I started kind of winning things. And, and I suppose the winning aspect kept me in it and it was an individual sport so if I went out and I won it was all down to me and I liked that mm-hmm. um, you know great when you're part of a team and you're winning but in GA there's 15 in soccer there's 11 other lads you know or 10 other lads so when it came to athletics I, I kind of I liked that uh, it was all about me selfish yeah but it, that's fine at school's level and at Irish level and you obviously decided to devote yourself to that mm. and gave up the, well you're back with the game now I might ask you yeah, about that yeah. I know it's going quite well but at world level, what, what convinced you that you could... I mean, your achievements are incredible. Re, re, consisting in the top 10 in the world, six in the world final, European indoor champion on a couple of occasions. We're talking proper elite against the very best athletes in the world in an event that Irish people had no tradition like mm. that in. Was there a certain race when you were younger that triggered that belief? Yeah, I think, to be fair, um, I'd never really done an indoor season before. Um, so 2005 came around. And you know, prior to 2005, I'd made... you know improvements on an Irish level like I was kind of doing well in national championships and stuff like that and I was still young but I'd never made any um any junior internationals or schools internationals like my first individual was uh European under 23 which is very very late um but and even that race I didn't really like I I went over there and we had three semi-finals and I came about seven to my semi-final um I was young like I was a year down but still that race 
you know, I never thought that I could go on and win medals. And then lo and behold, kind of, you know, I got into a good routine one winter and I started really enjoying my running um, and keeping fit. And I was, you know, we used to do a little route from the house in Ballantyre and I used to go down to Dundrum, up Taney Hill and all the way back around. And I remember one day I absolutely smashed it. Like, <laughs> I absolutely, like, I, I just felt so good. And I came back and I was like, oh my God, I'm after doing that in like 20 minutes. Um, and I remember thinking, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in shape here. Um, and that year I went on then and I did an indoor season and I kept getting quicker and quicker each race and also my win streak I was winning all my races and I went to the Europeans and I was highly ranked and I came home with a gold medal you know and I ran really really well in my semi-final I ran a PB in my semi-final 46-1 um, and the Irish record was 45-99 Paul McKee so I was now kind of in that sort of territory and then the final came around and uh, I wasn't favoured there was a Spaniard David Canal, who was favoured on home turf as well, and I beat him. And then that was the seed. That was like, hang on a second, like I could actually do something. And then I decided, right, uh, I was like, when I finished my degree, I was like, right now, I'm really going to throw everything into this. And I moved over to England and I put myself in, in an environment where I was surrounded by people that were better than me. And that was what I wanted. I wanted, um, there's a guy, Martin Rooney, uh, both his parents are Irish. Let's hope he doesn't declare for Ireland. <laughs> um, uh, but he was, he was quicker than me at the time. And uh, I was running 45.6, he was running 45.3. So point three doesn't sound like a lot, but in a race it is. Yeah. So I knew then, if I was training with a guy like this, I had to improve every single day. And that's what I wanted. And I absolutely loved training professionally, loved it. Do you take, you mentioned a couple of times there, and, and the Paul McKee's national record, I believe, is 45.62 for the uh, 400 meter outdoor. You mm. lowered that to 44.77, which is a, a stunning time. Do you take more pride in those times or in the medals or in that sixth place in the world outdoors? Is there, what, I think, what gives you more? Yeah, like most people would always jump to the, the medals, but I think for me, um, running under 45 seconds on a consistent basis um, and putting myself in that sort of uh, um, bracket with some of the, the best athletes in the world. Um, and also f- coming sixth in Berlin in the world final. Like, it's global athletics. That's where you want to be. Like, it's phenomenal win- winning Europeans and things like that. But, you know, when it comes to sprinting, it's America, Jamaica are really, really strong. And that's where you want to be up on a regular basis. And, Luckily, and thankfully for me, 2009, 2010, that's what I was doing. And in Berlin, to make a, a global world final, um, I think for Irish sprinting, it was, you know, it's unheard of. Not, it hasn't happened, it hasn't happened since back in Bob Tisdall in, in sprinting terms. Um, so to do that, I think for me, was, was was quite an achievement and very, very self-fulfilling. In terms of replacing the nerves that we talked about there, you have gone back to Gaelic football. <laughs> how, how are you finding that? I'm enjoying it. You know, it's great. Um, it's just something new and fresh. Like, I just feel it's a new challenge. And uh, it's, like I said at the start, I, I was getting back into running and stuff like that, but I felt I needed a goal and I wasn't really sure if my heart and soul was in athletics anymore. And... Um, I always said I'd go back and play GA because I just I, I enjoy it and that's simply the key to sport if you enjoy what you're doing and uh, it, it's funny though you know the, the lads are all kind of straight in midfield because you can run and it's a different fitness like you're blowing chunks after ten minutes there was one my first game I was looking to the ref and I was like ref how long till half time you know and the, the, the lad marking me goes Jesus you must be in bits if you're if you're asking the ref how long to half time um, but it's good fun and great. A bunch of lads and great club up there, so we're we're going well, and hopefully now I can give a little bit more to yeah, it. Yeah, so it sounds like physically it's taking its toll. Has the body held up all right? 
Uh, very interesting question. Um, different fitness. Um, a lot of stop go, stop go over the course of an hour. Whereas the last couple of years, it's all about running forward and running a straight line. Now I'm going left, right, jumping up and down, and then lads decide that do you know what we're going to hit them. Um, so unfortunately, after 12 years of running, uh, I've never torn a hamstring or broken anything. And after about six weeks of getting back involved with GAA, I broke my nose and tore a hamstring. Oh, no. Um, and it broke my nose. James Oliver, if he's listening, he's uh, ran, <laughs> ran straight into the back of his head. But I haven't tweeted it or anything because of a horrendous picture. But the sole reason is because if I tweet it, lads, you'll be playing against lads. And like, get Gillick's nose, get Gillick's nose. <laughs> but in typical GAA fashion, that happened on a Monday. And we had a game on... Uh, against Aaron's Oil on the Wednesday and the lads are like oh, you'd be alright to play Wednesday <laughs> they even give me a mask and everything but no uh, so I had to let that heal and get a couple of stitches and stuff like that but uh, it's, a, it's different it's different Are you finding that you've fit back into the team ethic okay because you said you enjoyed doing it for yourself for a number of years it's different it's completely different and you know I've actually just stood back a lot and kind of uh, learnt and, and watched what the other lads are doing like I'd be very naive to just stroll in and start barking orders uh, I haven't kicked the ball in 12 years so I'm better off just keeping quiet for now and uh, learning the trade and then then maybe I'll start uh, speaking up you'll be kept busy in retirement I'm sure David and as you said it's something that You've had in your head for a long time, so you're you're doing plenty, and you're in today promoting yeah. Johnson Mooney and O'Brien. You've kindly brought in some sandwich tins for us. Yeah, you know, like uh, nutrition is a passion of mine as well, and as we saw last year, getting involved with the MasterChef thing, really, really enjoyed it, and as been an elite athlete, uh, nutrition is, is is key. So, you know, Johnson Mooney and O'Brien have brought out a healthier sandwich. Um, you know, and it's kind of one of these things that a lot of Irish people, it's, it's not lunch if it's not in between two slices of bread. So <laughs> if we can get people looking after the diet a little bit more um, and keep a note of what they're putting into their bodies, I think we're on, we're on a good track. All right, we'll send Murph off to get some fittings now and <laughs> enjoy it then. Listen, David, thanks so much for coming in. And again, congratulations on Cheers, your... Thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it. Is a metaphor for the current of hot air generated by a furious blast of temper. The hairdryer with which uh, Alex Ferguson was famously associated. He threw a hairdryer, I think, at David Beckham. Oh, no, he threw a hairdryer at David Beckham. Uh, in the, is that right? No, 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 no. I must say, I absolutely loved that story. Really enjoyed. Hope, I hope you enjoyed that interview as well. It was really good to talk to David about all that. Really interesting person to chat to. The busted nose and busted hamstring within a couple of weeks <laughs> of playing football was good. But when he described the how nervous he used to get, I think everyone can empathise that. We all get nervous over certain things. And as it's happening, you really, really wish that it wasn't happening and you feel you really want to get out why of whatever did I get myself into why am situation? I doing this thing it's making me so nervous but these are the things that energise you as well it was interesting that he said look I realised I couldn't continue to do that three days without eating is not great uh, so the fact that he then that sounds like it was when he really started thinking about the mental side of things uh, which is how it probably is for most sports people I guess they get very good at a sport they feel that they can compete at it. Then they get to a certain point where most of them, certainly in individual sports like that, have to start thinking, right, how do I deal with the mental preparation mm. for this a little bit more? Is a nice insight, I thought. Yeah, and I think um, I think maybe, you know, for for ordinary people in their lives, when they get nervous about something, it's nearly, well, I'm never going to do that again. Um, but with sports people, it's like, well, this is what I've said I'm going to do. So I, I can't just write it off as, I felt really nervous, didn't enjoy it at all, got through this presentation or the speech or the wedding or whatever, and, uh, okay, well, I'll, never, I'll just never do that again. You can't really kind of make that deal with yourself <laughs> yeah. 
when you're a sports person who actually wants to win things. Well done to David. Have a listen to our World Cup podcast. We had Ken in Recife where he witnessed the very long and ultimately, I think, somewhat fruitful match between Costa Rica and Greece. It wasn't as bad as some people made out, I didn't think. But he was there for that. And Simon Cooper will talk to us about Holland. Van Hal in particular, who has not been slow to take credit for their victory yesterday. But Simon believes that he's coach of the tournament. And Ken has him as coach of the tournament as well so far. It's all supposed to be very encouraging for Manchester United fans. I suppose it's certainly better than him bombing out in the first round. I don't know how much direct relevance there is to what he's doing over there. Everybody knows that he's a tactically astute manager, but that's a conversation that you can hear in our World Cup podcast. Enjoy that one. Let's talk championship now. Maliki Clerken and Anthony Moyles are here. Thanks for popping in, lads. Cheers. Based on yesterday's performance, I want both of you, I'll start with you, Anthony, to give me one reason why Meath will beat Dublin in the Lancer final. Mm. Okay, can beat Dublin in the Lancer final. Uh, tactics and pace that's two sorry <laughs> but I would say tactically uh, yeah <laughs> O'Dowd is kind of he's definitely getting tactically more aware um, he got the matchups correct yesterday tactics wise he got it correct um, and regardless even of their fade away they should have been well out of sight even more out of sight than they were um, you know um, we've discussed this over the last while no one is yet really to kind of challenge Dublin in, in a sense of even tactically kind of challenge them. You know, like, I mean, I don't think Mead will go out in a, any kind of defensive manner. Mead will back themselves. Um, but he will be very much aware of trying to get matchups correct. Um, and there are certainly, and I still think there are certain matchups that Dublin can be exposed on. Um, and they're sitting there kind of at the top. You know, I don't think Dale really think too much or maybe they will um, about trying to get their matchups correct with regard to me like Hilaire did yesterday you know um, so I think that's where he will have a big opportunity Tactics and pace have you got a third one to add to that? Um, it's a bit of a cliche but you know they're, of all teams in the country neither the last ones that are going to turn up to Crook Park looking to get beat by Dublin you yeah. know which Wexford kind of did a wee bit yesterday you know they they will come and <laughs> they'll fancy a bit of it. You know they'll 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 turn up. They will they will have a they certainly have a couple of things uh, in their favour. Um, I actually I tipped Kildare on on the weekend, but I did it on. I kind of felt stupid doing it. It was only the the injuries that made me do it. Mm. And even then, if I'd known that they would have three more pull out on the morning of the game. I absolutely would have gone, absolutely Kildare do it here. But that didn't seem to knock a feather out of them. It almost strengthened them in in certain areas. Um, and I did. I I must hold my hands up. I didn't know that they had that deep a squad to, to be able to take essentially six six injuries and, and still come out and, and absolutely blitz Kildare in the first half. What are the matchups that you're talking about there? What Meath players do you think can cause damage to Dublin? Who would you put them on? Um... Okay, well I, well, I think certain certain Dublin players have to be um, exposed to a certain degree. So I think Philly McMahon has to be actually kept within very, very close to the goal as much as possible. Um, I would try... Mead, even yesterday, went with a two-man full forward line. Um, 
they'll probably want to keep Cooper and O'Carroll in there. But what you'll keep trying to do is whoever Philly McMahon is on, I would keep rotating him back into the full forward line. Just keep trying to expose him actually in that full back line. Um, all the while then bringing Cooper actually out. Now, it's a dangerous ploy to bring Cooper out because he's very, very comfortable on the ball. But if you see what the way Meade did yesterday... They, 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 they're actually getting quite comfortable at taking the ball, transitioning the ball from defence into attack and if it's not on early, say, into Bray they're actually quite comfortable with holding it up and then just looking for runners like Graham Riley yeah. coming at pace yeah. at an angle and that's, it's, it doesn't matter how many defenders you have in Crow Park, if you have that, you know, so I'm just soloing and I'm waiting for basically a man just to come off my shoulder at pace, which Graham Riley does and which Dunica Tobin did and Damien Carroll did. And then all of a sudden it's a jink inside and another hand pass quickly to a man. And there was a, there was a brilliant score at one stage, I think, I think, I can't remember who kicked it, I think Damien Carroll kicked it, where they did that. They kind of crisscrossed three yeah, or four times. It was exactly. really like a rugby move, you know. Mm. And it's, it's very, very difficult to mark that. So the old way of Mead, which was get the head up, get the ball in quickly. There was a lot of that. But there was also a a maturity, I think, amongst the squad, which was, well, actually, if it's not on, and if, which Kildare did at the start, Kildare actually had Bolton sitting in front of Foley and uh, McGrillan, but then they they changed it for some reason. If someone plays an extra man inside, that that sometimes always isn't on, so you need to change it up. Um, But because they took Bolton out, it actually exposed Foley really badly. Because it was 30 yards of space now. And the pressure wasn't on being applied on the ball coming in. So Stephen Bray could make left run, right run, and and pick up whatever he wanted. Um, So that is an area, I think, to start off where I think they they certainly can can take them. The the fall away in the last 20 minutes, is that a big concern for, for me? I would be concerned about it, but it, but it's 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 understandable. You know, people said, "Well, Kildare," but I think it was more Mead got a bit sloppy, oh, and yeah, they actually yeah, fell away yeah. completely. Like if you look at it, Chain work was out on his feet. Brian Mead was gone. Uh, Brian Menton and was, that's was where also the injuries tired. Kicked in exactly. You know, they had, they just didn't have the replacements to come in. Well, if you look at it, if you think of Gillespie gone, Wallace gone, Killian O'Sullivan gone, yeah. uh, Mickey Newman gone. You've probably then, and then the other guys who went from yesterday. That's your five or six then bench guys who are on, the, who are starting on the team. So then you're, you're, as as Malky says, you're delving deeper into the panel. So all of a sudden you're kind of, you know, you're just you're really kind of getting down to the bare bones. But fair play to them, the fellas who came on. They they showed up. Even Joey Wallace, Wallace's younger brother. Like I mean, he made an impact. He was finding the tough, I suppose, the physicality of it. But he still popped up with a very, very vital score near the end to kind of settle nerves a bit. Yeah, the concern would be though that that's the exact time that Dublin's superiority really starts to yeah. hit home. The last twenty minutes, and Look, when you're transitioning players or when you're getting that bench into the game in the last twenty minutes, like Mead can't afford for whatever reason if if O'Rourke and Mead were out in their feet. They can't have that happen. They they just can't. Well, you kind of you kind of have to look at where where do where would Meath need to be with fifteen minutes to go for this to be a game? You know, would they need to be five points up? Like, if their level is it really a game? Like, you know, it's it's the Dublin's. I I was looking at this at the end of the league. I actually went through so, some stats about just pure scoring power off the bench. Right, um, I think Dublin in the league. Scored three twenty off the bench. Um, Cork scored, I think, two nineteen, and Tyrone scored like two ten, and everybody else was way way down. So if you if you think about, <clears throat> most counties look to when they're bringing people in off the bench, the the 
what they're really hoping for is not to weaken the side. Mm. You know, that's the majority of counties mm. are, they have 15, 17, maybe 19 players who are really, really top standard. That's, and that's even, you're getting into the top 10 counties at mm. that point. Maybe you're, you've only got then, Tyrone for, for, for the simple reason that Tyrone have so many players that are more or less the same sort of level of ability. They don't really weaken coming off the bench. They sometimes strengthen, but they don't weaken. Cork are, I'd say, the only team outside of Dublin that can really properly strengthen off the bench because they have so many forwards to bring in. They they beat Tipperary because Aidan Walsh came on, uh, having not played any football for six weeks, mm. and changed the game. Uh, Cork have that, but Dublin have a different level altogether. You know, Dublin have. Conor Costello came off the bench and scored one five. Like one five is an outrageous, <laughs> ridiculous uh, total to score total in to half score. of football. Um, so that I mean, like that. That's why I, I go back to what I'm saying is like 15 minutes to go. Where do Mead need to be for this to be a game? Yeah, but that's the question. And where Mead need to be is Mead need to be probably five or six points up. They need to take and and there is probably no. I know they missed goal chances yesterday. Mm. I can't see them missing them if they get them again against Dublin. They probably created. Like Dalton McDonald could have had four goals. If Stephen Bray got his head up one, he just could have flicked him oh. the pass. So there was goals, and they do have that ability. When they sniff a goal, they will go for goal. And you have to score. We said and it. Dublin will give up the chances. Absolutely. And even yesterday, Wexford had one or two, you know, but we, we, we discussed it in the league final. Derry, I think, had five or six. Mm. There are goals there, um, and the goals are there purely because the half back line of Dublin are very, very pro forward you know they will they will start to attack they will leave space and that will suit that mid full forward line down you know Mickey Newman should be fine um, so that will also assist but I think they're getting the balance right but the, the thing is you do have to be at least six to seven ahead yeah, because you, at that stage sorry but, but at that stage your midfielders don't really make a difference if you know what I mean if you get if you take Shane O'Rourke out and you bring on a guy who's only 5 foot 7 5 foot 8 it's not really because you can kind of you can set up then differently you can say right lads we'll actually we'll defensively get a bit more set up here and we look to a break and we'll try to hold our 6 point or 5 point lead we've done the hard work now let's see what Dublin can actually bring against us and that's that's I'd say is the if hope. you were let's 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 say in a, in a utopian world a utopian Mead's world, of course. <laughs> that <laughs> they are that they are five six points up with fifteen minutes to go. Like, should they over the next couple of weeks be planning, be be drilling, say a blanket defence? Say fifteen minutes to go, we we turn into Donegal here. We turn into Armagh. Well, I certainly think what they will do is, like, it was great to get legs into O'Rourke, Brian Menton, Brian Mead's yesterday, but you could see you know, that they faded really badly. And, like, I mean, massive fish. They put in a massive amount of work. But there was, I was I, what was even more surprising and, 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 and great to see was the fact that Donegal Tobin, Porrick Harnan, Donald Keoghan, these guys were still full of running in the mm. last 15 minutes. And they kind of led, led the line, if you know what I mean. So they're the guys that you'll end up bringing in. Seamus Kenny, you'll bring in a couple of kind of older heads, Mickey Burke, a few more defensive guys. Mm. And you're right. Not necessarily train for it, but just say that okay. But there's I wonder. A switch on but I here. wonder, should that be a plan, like like to actually structurally change? That would go the against team. the traditional Mead values, though, Malik. You interviewed Mick O'Dowd over the weekend, yeah. so you should 
You know, but Lee Strike is a kind of guy. He's pragmatic too. He's a good Very coach. Pragmatic. So maybe yeah. even though he's when he talked about traditional Mead values, he was he wasn't quite talking about lamping the ball in to to, to the full forward. He was talking line. more uh, about playing with the pride and connection with the county because yeah. he's been taking the team around. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I find I find him very impressive. I actually yeah. find him in a group situation. He's quite a quiet fella, mm. uh, and I know like when when we are the sort of the gaggle of reporters around him. His body language is almost kind of kind of mousy. He kind of stands back off us a little bit. Um, but I met him there la- last week, uh, just on my own, and he, he was great. He really thoughtful guy, really and really just dedicated to me. Like mm. you, you know, really like like he says, I've been involved in three teams in my life: UCD, Screen, and Meath, and there won't be a fourth. Like that's <laughs> it. You know, he is he is me to the bone. I I, I would not rule out. Something like that. Like, I know that that's a kind of a, a sort of a drastic idea, but you have got to work out a way to win the game. Uh, and, like, even Wexford yesterday, in that first half, missed 1-7. Mm-hmm. When the game was, when Dublin were really sloppy, they were kicking loads of wides. I think they kicked four wides, dropped three into Cluxton's hands, and uh, was it O'Grady had mm-hmm. the goal chance. So it's one seven in 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 the course of like fifteen minutes. Let's talk a little bit about the Dubs. Aidan O'Brien, Wexford manager, said uh, I gave this quote a little bit earlier on, but essentially he was talking about all players are in pristine peak fitness. Some of them will be overlapped by others, though. He made an analogy of an Olympic mm. final, five thousand meters. He says the difference with Dublin is there's an innate athleticism. I think that's what Dublin have a phenomenal athleticism uh, right around the field, which was an interesting way of phrasing mm. it. That it's not just about fitness, which is the word that, that's used. It's not just about running around. It's about being able to use your athleticism. Paul Flynn is probably mm. the, 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 the... If you if you wanted to pick one player out of that whole Dublin mm. setup um, who has this innate athleticism, he is he is the man. Um, there's a number of others. There's still a few... Like, you know, you think of Costello. Costello hasn't got innate athleticism no. because he's just a young guy. Um, but he's been marked and been marked out of games in the league and stuff. Yesterday he comes on, he probably wasn't that tightly marked. Some of the marking by Wexford was a bit off. But if you're talking about innate athleticism and a guy who just literally buries you into the ground with his running, it's Flynn. He never stops. He never stops working. Like, the, 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 the man who was on him from Wexford... I, I, after 20 minutes, I was actually I, was, I felt sorry for the guy because he was trying to get forward, but he knew every time he got forward that he'd have to come back and wherever Flynn... Flynn was probably over the other side of the pitch. Flynn made sure that he wasn't where his marker was looking for him after yeah. he had run 100 yards up the field. Hour. He'd yeah. turn around, where the hell has this guy gone? I've no idea where he yeah. is. And you're scanning the entire field and Flynn's playing right corner forward. I think you know? Flynn is, is a really instructive person to look at when you look at Dublin because... There is always a tendency and there is always an undertone when we're talking about Dublin that and it, and it's sort of grown legs and it grows legs every year. Asher, look at all the players they have. Look at all the resources they have. Sure, why aren't they winning it every year? All of the, they, you know, this is it, this is should be a, a penalty kick for them. If you look at Paul Flynn's physique now and when Dublin won the All Ireland in two thousand and eleven, the work he has put in mm-hmm. to, yeah. his, to to his body is phenomenal. If you look at Ono Gara now, and Ono Gara when Dublin won the All-Ireland in 2011 under Gilroy, it's a complete... He's is a that the different. shape you need now? Because there, there is the argument it's that It's the shape you need if you're going to play against Dublin. Yeah, maybe, because there is the argument that Kildare have slimmed down a little bit from the the tanks that played under McGinney. But maybe, I don't know, maybe they need to bulk up again. I don't know. Well, 
It yeah, might Jason be down Ryan to the is, fact that there's a lot of young players. Yeah, you know exactly. I think it's personnel more so. You know, people are saying, "Oh, well, you know, it's it's a, it's a slicker Calderi." I don't think that's necessarily true. Just you know, a few smaller guys, a few smaller there. fellas. Yeah, like I mean, Fogarty is is as big as anyone yeah. who was ever on the Calderi team. Wouldn't be telling Tommy uh, Mulek he's not a big. Guy. No, yeah. exactly. <laughs> so, like, I mean, I think. You know, these these labels like to be put out there. Um, the one thing you would say about Dublin is is that players like Flynn and, say, Macaulay and these guys and a few others, they, there, there is an air of confidence now um, and there's an air of confidence whereby they're willing to take the chance now. Like, I mean, no Dublin player would have thought they were going to lose that game yesterday. Yeah. You know, so when you're marking a guy and you really know that, ah, sure, if he gets a point and... If, even if they get two or three, I know we're going to get one six in the next 10, 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. And there is that. You, you can sense it. Now, to get back to the, to, the, to, the, to the Leicester final and even to get back to the Wexford game, you have to be in a situation where you start to question that and you start to actually really, really question it in the sense of not just to kick a point and turn around and, in the first five minutes and give it one of those to a Dublin player. Like, I mean, you're really inside his head and you're going, well, I'm taking it to you. Every time you get the ball, I'm taking it to you. And every time I get the ball, you're going to be at the pin of your collar. That athleticism, it's a strange thing because, you know, you very rarely hear of a team saying, oh, well, you know, they lost, this, they lost the All-Ireland final because they just weren't fit enough, right? You know, you very rarely hear that. You could say, yes, they Mead faded away, ex- exactly. But also, if you're, if you're a cute enough manager, you can expose people because everyone has weaknesses. Even Flynn has, have, uh, has a weakness, you know? And you, you, you just, if you're cute enough and if you're smart enough, you have to have the ability to expose Do we know that. his weakness very briefly, Flynn? Uh, I'll tell you next week. <laughs> <laughs> Once we see him, finally we'll know. Kildare, uh, interesting draws in the qualifiers. Kildare, just to talk about Kildare and Wexford, they were the teams knocked out yesterday. Kildare drawn against Down, which is tricky enough. Kildare could face. Yeah, I mean, there's elimination. Uh, oh, they certainly could face elimination. Down should have beaten Tyrone in yeah. the in the first game in in Healy Park. Donald Hare missed the missed the free that would have put them three up going into injury time. Um. There are two sides, you know, that are around between, we'll say, 9 to 15 in the country. You could play each other 10 times and it would be five wins each. I, I would I would give a little bit of a, of a nod to down, but I, I wouldn't have any huge yeah, confidence Nuri, either side. Nuri would be the major deciding factor. Well, there, to an extent. And, and, and Kildare, like, Kildare, okay, it was only, what, four or five points in the end. Kildare kind of hammered yesterday. They were really... Outclassed at the back, like like the the second Meath goal, like Meath went in, scored the penalty before half time. Kildare got into the dressing room, six points down, five points down, and going right. We go out, we keep it tight in the second half. First ball that comes in, three. The whole full back line ran for the ball at the edge of the D, mm. and none of them got it. Yeah, like that's yeah. that's yeah. under twelve. Wexford so. drawn against Leash. Um, is that a good or a bad draw for Wexford? The funny thing about this draw You'll is... You'll tell us that in a couple of weeks as well. Yeah, <laughs> no, the funny thing about this draw is it, it, you know, if you were being a little bit of the old conspiracy theory, it's like someone sat down and actually picked them out. If you try to... Because the matchups are actually pretty even all the mm. way across, like Carlo Clare, Cavan Roscommon, you know, Tyrone versus Monaghan. Like, it's amazing. No, no minnow has been picked against a big team. So they're all very... Like, Wexford Leash is evenly matched. Yeah. You couldn't really. Tip Longford... Again, you know, pretty evenly matched. So, it's it's 
it is pretty finely balanced all the way through, which is which is, and you know you could get some perceived shocks, uh, but I definitely think the Dan Kildare, we're getting back to the old pitches here and the you know which stadium is, but Nuri is not a place you want to go a week after being knocked out of the championship. Yeah. The weekend of the twelfth as well, but maybe I should just just draw a discreet <laughs> veil over that. The, the draw, we touched on it there. Armagh against or Armagh or Monaghan will play against Tyrone, so that focuses the minds even more Big for these time, two yeah. teams. You were there for the game on Saturday night, did you? You didn't manage to break the force field that seems to be around the Armagh team when it comes yeah, to the media. They're not talking uh, Look, anyone. they're uh, they're. What's their issue? There's not nobody. They seem to well, okay. So they so they seem to 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 think that they didn't get fair play out of the disciplinary system. They don't really elaborate on that, or they haven't really elaborated. They, they seem to think that they were wronged. Um, you know, it took three three very experienced players out of their team, but it looks, it really looks like a, a kind of a forced siege mentality. And look, it's kind of working for them. They were very impressive on Saturday night. They really, they deserved their draw, and you wouldn't have begrudged them a win against Monaghan. Monaghan were Pretty slow to the ball compared to them. Jamie Clark was was far and away better than Colin Walsh, who was marking him. Um, and you don't say that about Colin Walsh very often. Mm-hmm. Like he's an all star cornerback, and he is he is the guy that Monaghan send after the best forward. Um, and Jamie kind of led him a merry dance. Was out in front of him every every time. Um, Stephen Campbell that came in was uh, was really good, really kind of forceful. They're they're with. I don't know if Monaghan will be just as lethargic again in the replay on Sunday. I don't think they can be. But again, it comes back to Monaghan's problem. Monaghan don't score enough and they don't mm. score enough goals. Just on the issue of them not speaking to the media, what's the point of that? If it is a, f- a forced siege mentality, I, I guess everyone knows the point of it. The idea is that it's us against the world. You can galvanise your players. Do they really need that, though? Should they not just be going out and playing football? Because it should be... These players should have really enjoyed that match the other day. They get a great draw. They should be able to talk about about that. Maybe talk about the last minute free, and instead, there it's all this. Oh, they all hate us. Let's go. Yeah, it's horses for courses. Um, You're saying it might suit Armagh. I think so. Right. You know, you've Grimley. Uh, you know, obviously, Kira McGinney is there now. He's obviously done an awful lot of work. It seems on the defensive. No grudge system. ever unnerved. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> but you know, it's it's. You know, you've got a you've got a couple of individuals there who would just absolutely love a siege mentality. They were born for a siege mentality, <laughs> yeah. and, and no matter what happens, they're going to develop it. Um, but I agree with Maliki. They they're, they've set up perfectly because if you look at Monaghan, uh, Monaghan need to get into Crow Park. Oh yeah. Because without getting into Crow Park, they are going to come up against this system, which is come at us, come get us, because they don't have enough, they haven't got fellas at 5-6-7 who are going to kick scores, they, you know, they don't have guys who are able to take really good long-range points, McManus, and they, and they need, what they need is they need to use us and these fellas going at pace straight down the middle where they can open teams but up. Also, yeah. Conor McManus has never scored a goal in the Championship, mm. Kieran Hughes has never scored a goal in the Championship, they don't score enough goals, you have to go back to 2007, the last time they scored two goals in a Championship game, yeah. It's it's it might get them through Ulcer, but you know, in the bigger games, it's going to count against them. Yeah, we're just about out of time here, lads. But a quick word on Desi Dolan, who has announced his retirement. Pretty horrible season to have to end with for Westmead, Anthony. But one of those players from a perceived weaker county who has had this national attention purely because of his quality and some achievements of his county early on in his career. But uh, 
footballer you enjoyed watching and playing against? Yeah, yeah, excellent player. Um, marked him a few times. Um, not that closely, but I marked him. Uh, no, he was. He was. He was a serious talent. Um, I think he, he. You know, he's. He said the last couple of years have been tricky. Obviously, with yeah. Westmead, you know, he's been trying to impact himself on the team. Um, and he's always been at when he gets to that certain age, you're kind of going, "Are you wanted?" You know, and you're and you're. But he, he, you know what? He's done an awful lot for Westmead over time during that kind of golden era there for Westmead. Mm-hmm. Like they had a serious, they yeah, had a serious call them a week because they weren't a week in county at that point. Oh they no! Like I mean, geez, we, we, like I mean, two thousand and one. We like I mean, they should have beaten us twice. You know, we came back from the dead. Um, and, like, I mean, they had a serious... They had a serious setup. Flanagan, they had, you know, Rory O'Connell midfield, Heaven, mm. you know, Desi Dolan. Like, I mean, they had, they had, a, they had a fair good outfit, you know. And you yeah. got to hand it to him. He's the last one standing. He is. Out of all of them. Yeah. You know. That's, we'll leave it there. Maliki, thank you. Anthony, Cheers. thank you. Cheers. You can see the level of expectancy. Coach... This is the game you wanted a victory, boy. It didn't happen. What happened? Oh, that made such an idiot. A game that they've been looking forward to for a long time. Where do you where do you think you got it all wrong today? And then Pepe just ruins it for everyone. Thanks a lot, Pepe. You can see the level of expectancy. <laughs> It was fucking dreadful. Sorry, huh? we're not we're out of here. Oh, we're not. We are. Oh. Well, I apologise for that, but obviously, <laughs> it didn't exactly to win. All right. Murph, maybe just take us through that qualifier draw that was made this morning. Okay, so the draw for round two A of the qualifiers games to take place on Saturday, July the fifth, is Wexford against Leash. And you can draw a line through Dublin uh, in horse racing parallels and see who you fancy there. Uh, Tipperary against Longford. Uh, Limerick versus Antrim. And uh, Sligo go to Fortress Ockram for their match against Wicklow. And uh, Now, it actually is a fortress when Sligo come to town because uh, Wicklow beat them there a couple of years ago. So um, we shouldn't mock the fact that no, I, I, it's often called a fortress, but it is an often stormed fortress. Yeah, they, have, they, they had their run a few years ago. Let's not... Yeah. Patronise Wicklow people. No, have. no. There's well, I mean, you know, it's, I'm just bringing Proud real football county. Just bringing real talk to the people of Wicklow, and that's that's what I do. <laughs> uh, Saturday, July the twelfth, uh, is round two B. Carlow against Clare, um, Cavan against Roscommon, Tyrone against Monaghan uh, or Armagh. The losers of that game, and uh, the game we were discussing a little earlier on down in Kildare. So they are actually all really, really delicately poised games. Have a listen to our Irish Time Second Captain's World Cup podcast. That's out now. Monday's is out now. We'll have another one for you tomorrow after tonight's games between Germany, Algeria and France and Nigeria. Have a listen to irishtimes.com forward slash second captains. Get on to irishtimes.com forward slash podcast to listen to uh, some of the other superb podcasts that are out there for you now. You can follow us on Twitter at second captains. You can Facebook, facebook.com forward slash second captains. And I think that's probably just about it from us. Murph, thank you. Thank you, Owen. And thanks very much for listening. We'll talk to you again tomorrow. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those